0: Hi, I'm Democratic Strategist Allie Lapp. And I'm Republican Strategist Liesl Hickey. Welcome to House Talk with Allie and Liesl, where we dig into U.S. House races and the fight for control in 2018. Today we're going to talk about a subject that has been a priority of mine for years, electing women to office, and in particular, electing women to the US House. Joining us for that discussion are two women, one from each side of the aisle, who can give us some great insight into electing women candidates. Julie Conway is the Executive Director of VUPAC, a political action committee that helps Republican candidates get to Congress. Julie has also been a leader in candidate recruitment on the Republican side, and she's been an amazing mentor to many of our Republican women candidates.
1: And from the Democratic side of the aisle, we are thrilled to be joined by Emily Kane, the executive director of EMILY'S LIST, a political action committee that helps elect Democratic women. I should note that EMILY'S LIST is not named after EMILY Kane. (laughs) It's actually an acronym for Early Money is Like Yeast, and we'll talk more about that later. Emily knows a thing or two about being elected as a woman. She served in the Maine State Senate and ran for Congress herself before becoming Executive Director of Emily's List. So Emily, tell me, having been a politician yourself, what appealed to you about taking the helm at Emily's List?
2: Well, I should say first that I can't prove that I didn't get the job because my name is Emily, but <laughs> it is certainly a fun, uh, a fun connection to have. So I served 10 years in the state legislature in Maine, in the House and in the Senate. And I think every day when I come to work here at Emily's List, what makes me so excited is our expanded work at the state and local level, where I can bring some on-the-ground perspective as someone who has knocked on thousands of doors in hundreds of towns across the state as a candidate for the House and Senate, and then as a candidate for Congress as well. I think I bring some instant credibility to our conversations with candidates when it comes to recruitment. And also having been there can bring a candidate perspective to the work that we do to try to strengthen our results, whether it's in recruitment and ultimately
0: when we intend to win a lot of races this fall, I can bring that experience to bear. And Julie, tell us a little bit about the history of VUPAC and why you decided to found the organization. So uh, VUPAC has been around for 20 years, and VIEW stands for Value in Electing
3: Women. Uh, VUPAC is a hybrid PAC, which means uh, while we spend most of our time on the federal side giving hard dollars, we also have the ability to uh, invest in independent expenditures through the soft money side. Up until this year, we have not really engaged that piece of the PAC, but we're excited to be doing that for the first time in 2018. Um, VUPAC was founded in 1997. It was actually Newt Gingrich's idea. Uh, We like to say that Newt has had lots of ideas. I quite frankly think that VUPAC was one of the best. And so uh, we're excited that uh, he he decided back then that there needed to be uh, an organization which solely focused on helping elect more Republican women. While I spent most of my career as a professional fundraiser, I never worked directly for any female candidates on the Republican side, with the exception of Susan Molinari, uh, when she was a congresswoman from Staten Island. And so I always wanted to spend more time uh, in this area. I thought it was really important that we have more Republican women uh, get elected to federal office. While we spend a lot of our time on the House side, just because of volume, we also uh, help US senators get elected. Um, Kathy McMorris-Rogers, who's the highest ranking woman in the House, is our co-chair on the House side, and Shelley Moore Capito uh, is our co-chair for the Senate.
1: Great, well, let me start by asking both of you a really basic question. Why should we care if there are women in office? It, aren't, aren't the policies the most important thing? And why does it matter to have a female perspective and a bigger female perspective in both of the both of the political parties that you that you all represent? And how do your organizations um, help those women get to office?
2: Well, I'll start with Emily's list. When you go back to our roots more than three decades ago, we were founded originally because there had never been a Democratic woman elected in her own right to the US Senate. Emily's List's founding women got together, put their small dollars together, and got Barbara Mikulski elected. They helped her win without question, and she will tell you that herself. (laughs) Since then, Emily's List has gone on to elect more than 100 women to the House, more than 20 senators, and hundreds of state and local candidates. And we do this because we know when there are more women at the table, we get better policies. I've seen this myself. I remember when I was a state legislator in my second term, there was a question about whether or not we should put the term domestic violence into law as its own type of crime. It got a lot of pushback, particularly from my male colleagues, who said, but we already have assault. We already have battery. Why are we renaming a crime we already have? But domestic violence is different. It's a crime that's much more about context and family and relationships. And in this case, a bipartisan group of women got together, stood together, and got those laws passed. It's about bringing that more diverse perspective to the table, uh, whether women are Republicans or Democrats. And at EMILY's List, we have focused on pro-choice Democratic women from the beginning, uh, which we believe brings an important perspective on women, on women's abilities to make their own choices, uh, to all the policy discussions. Yeah, I would echo
3: that completely. I think that, um, that women, regardless of their um, political persuasion, bring a very different view to most issues. I mean, one of, the, um, one of the catchphrases these days are, you know, what exactly is a woman's issue? And we, we like to say that all, all issues are women's yeah. issues. <laughs> yes. uh, women just take, have a different approach to often solving difficult um, problems and, uh, quite frankly, you know, are known to be better compromisers in just about everything in life. Um, part of it is because
2: we've had to, and another reason is because, quite frankly, we know that more gets done that way. I'm guessing that Julie and I would both agree that if we can get to 50% or more women, we will not be discussing whether pregnancy is a pre-existing condition <laughs> <That's> Exactly. <right. laughs> when it comes to healthcare. That's we we exactly won't right. see those kinds of conversations that are, quite frankly, pretty ridiculous. Right. Um, taking up time and taxpayer dollars, instead we'll see women working together to get things done. Yeah. Agreed.
0: Well, uh, there are a lot of challenges women face when they're running for office. And uh, my conversations with recruiting women, they're very different conversations that I've had than recruiting male candidates. But what are some of the challenges that you all have 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 sort of experienced, or the conversations you've had with women candidates on why they may not want to run? Where where they'd be a great candidate, but you know, what are the obstacles that they see to actually becoming a candidate, filing the papers, and and really making the leap to to you know take on the hard race?
3: Well, I'll, I'll start. Um from my experience, one of the most challenging things for women, quite frankly, is making the decision to run. Uh, Women have to be persuaded over and over again that they they would actually be an excellent person uh, to run for office. Uh, Women tend to uh, think that there's somebody out there that's you know, brighter, more experienced, you know, more knowledgeable on certain issues. Whereas, you know, quite frankly, the guys, you know, the first time somebody suggests, hey, you should run for Congress. Yeah. You think? Okay. I'm in. Uh, that's, not, that's, uh, that's not how thats not how women think. Uh, women, for the most part, want to make sure that there's a clear path to victory and that whatever it is they're, they're giving up, whatever sacrifices are to be made, uh, they're going to do it and, 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 and be victorious at the end. Um, guys sort of tend to of course painting with a broad brush stroke here but uh, guys tend to sort of fake it as they go and, and hope that the support will come behind them women very much want to know that the support is out there and that they they um, they, they know enough about the issues, um, and I'll just say that it's really interesting when you have some incredible leaders running for office whose background uh, now especially isn't necessarily that of, um, of being public servants in the past. And so we have a variety of, of candidates this cycle that we're really proud of, um, a lot with military backgrounds or medical backgrounds, uh, not the tr- traditional um, um, resumes as a lot of uh, members in the past had before running for office.
2: I agree with, with everything Julie just said. I mean, for us at EMILY's List, we have seen this, this surge of women come up this year to say they want to make a plan to run for office. But that really has not typically been the case. We've been asking and sometimes begging women to run for office for more than 30 years. And the women have a different experience when they campaign. Because of the way society looks at women, because of the conversations we're having right now, whether it's Me Too or Time's Up, women have a, have decades or generations, if not thousands of years, of being treated differently and perceived differently. Just yesterday, I did a call with a congressional candidate, and she was telling me that every time she's gone for an endorsement interview, Recently, she's been asked, well, who will take care of your children when you get elected to Congress? And, you know, she sort of vented to me. I, I bet they're not asking the, male, the males in this race that question. And then she joked she's going to start passing out a, a list for people to sign up to take shifts with her kids. <laughs> when, of course, we all know the answer is she's going to take care of her children. And she's gonna bring that perspective to Congress. I mean, I used to knock on, I knocked on thousands of doors when I was running for office and the number of times I got asked whether my husband supported what I was doing. I mean, the fact that I got asked it at all, but the fact that I got asked it more than once, I mean, it, it just, to me speaks to a moment that we still have work to do. And to me, the answer to that moment is getting more women elected. That's where we change the aspirations. That's where we turn those awkward moments where women are being judged on their looks or on their family status, we turn those into teaching moments that show us that those things actually make women stronger and better ready to serve.
3: Yeah, I, I totally agree. And I'll, just, I'll tell you one quick story on that. Uh, Congresswoman Martha Roby from Alabama uh, tells a great um, campaign trail uh, story where actually an older woman came up to her and said, you know, Martha, you know, who's who's going to make dinner if you're if you're in D.C. <laughs> and Martha, without missing a beat, said, Well, I sure hope Riley still does because he's the one that makes dinner for the kids now. <laughs> you know, Riley, of course, being her husband, and so it happens in in all corners of, of, of the United States. It doesn't matter, you know, whether you're running in a big city or or a small town. It's it's really the first question that uh, women candidates get asked over and over again. And the other thing that I, I'll add, and I'll do a little hat tip to uh, Emily's uh, hometown uh, U.S. Senator Susan Collins, uh, uh, there's a, a the challenge about women thinking they need to be policy experts on everything. Susan Collins tells, a, Senator Collins tells a, a great story where there was a, a, a male candidate running uh, against her and she was con- she was continuously being challenged on on policy issues and, and the guy that she was running against knew nothing about foreign policy except that he drove a Toyota and that he felt like he knew an awful lot about foreign policy because he drove a Toyota and so women do not have conversations like that with other women or other men they actually truly want to be experts on on issues and you know they're afraid that they're going to ask something they don't know everything about uh, and that's okay because the follow-up question from women is teach me about that tell me more about it whereas guys at least on the republican side i will say you know guys are it's easier to answer questions with the with some of the standard lines of you know i'm for lower taxes and a strong foreign defense whereas women want to know specifically what's going on in Ara- Iran, in iraq and uh you know the guys s- sort of tend to go back to the talking points if they don't actually understand an issue
2: absolutely i yes to all of that <laughs> and and i think you know this is what this moment is about for us at emily's list we've been begging women for a long time to run. We've gotten a lot of them to say yes. Um, Since election day 2016, we've had more than 34,000 women reach out to us to say they wanna make a plan to run for office. That's why we see this particular moment not as a wave or not as a moment, but rather as a sea change and one that will carry us with more women in public service at all levels of government, not just in the 2018 cycle, but for really cycles and hopefully decades and and generations to come. And that's why it's so important right now that we work extra hard to get these women elected.
1: Well, we've had a lot of elections in 2017 and early 2018, special elections, legislative elections. Gubernatorial elections, and it seems to me that women are doing really well right now. You know, in in the state of Virginia, we won a Democrats won a ton of legislative seats, more than they were even hoping for, and a lot of them were relatively, you know, sort of obscure candidates. People weren't focusing on, and a lot of those were women. And at least in the Democratic primaries for Congress that we've seen so far, being a woman has been an asset. Um, I'm not sure that's always been the case. I, I'm kind of curious from to hear from both of you. Do you think, how do you think voters respond to female candidates? What are some of the unique challenges a woman has to face as she's facing the voters? And do you think that's changing now? How do you think that moves forward from here?
2: Well, some of it, I think we we talked touched on a little bit about women being, uh, People making the wrong assumptions, making the assumption that you don't know, making the assumption that you haven't done this kind of work before. When really, what we're finding now is the the stories of our candidates, whether they have been, whether they are veterans or they are teachers or they are small business owners. That those are actually the kinds of stories people can relate to, because those are real people stories. And I think when you look at the women running. The Emily's List women running I, are the ones I know best. You see women running with real stories of where they came from, about what motivated them. In Illinois, we have w- women who are running, a lot of whom have health care stories, whether they were taking care of a child or taking care of a parent or dealing with breast cancer on their own. We have women who served our country and who bring stories of of being pilots or being leaders in the military who are now going to bring those skills to Congress. I think the difference is right now is the women do not see themselves being represented when they watch TV and see the policy discussions that are going on. It's not that different than when women turned on their TVs in the 90s and saw Anita Hill sitting before an all-male judiciary committee. That's the equivalent of what's happening now, when you see all-male panels working on issues of healthcare, when you see all men represented at night on the news of who's making the decisions and and women voters and families feeling unsettled by that. So the answer is to put people you trust into office. And I think that's the case that our women candidates are making.
3: Yeah, I I agree 100%. And the Republicans have a great variety of women running this cycle, more than we've ever had run before. Certainly when all the filings and all the states are up, we'll have more women uh, running for federal office than we ever had in the past. And the other other challenge um, for women is, you know, not just for women, but, specifically this cycle, is that we finally have open seats on the Republican side. And so, in the past, while we've had great women running for office, they were often running in seats that were held by Democrats, and so a much larger challenge to, to become elected. So now we see our challenge in getting women through primaries. Uh, which is has always been the most difficult part, but the good, We just
0: had good success in Arizona. We just had in success in Arizona.
3: Yep, and we've had actually two special elections so far. We picked up Karen Handel in, yep. the, in the Tom Price seat in Georgia, uh, that got us to 22 women in the House. Um, with the um, Debbie Lesko winning her primary in the special election in Arizona, uh, she will in all likelihood be victorious in the general, which is coming up in two months, um, and then have to turn around again to to hold that seat. But that's a pickup for us. And we've got women uh, in, in we've had at least one woman in runoff in Texas. And so, you know, again, whoever is victorious in that runoff will likely become the member because it's historically been a safe Republican seat. And so, you know, on the upside, there's more opportunities. Um, You know, the system is, is, is set up for it to be very difficult to win a lot of these seats. And quite frankly, you know, regardless of whether you're a Democrat or Republican, there very few competitive seats across the country historically. So now that there's a lot more open, there's a lot more opportunity to get women in, uh, both Democrats and Republicans.
0: I think the interesting thing I've noticed watching uh, Democratic women and Republican women run their campaigns so far this cycle is they're doing exactly what Emily said. They're telling their own stories. They're not trying to tell a male story. They're actually just telling their story. And the authenticity that that brings puts him in a totally different league than a lot of the other candidates. And they're just. I don't want to say leaning in, but I'm going to say it. But they're <laughs> leaning into their brand, who they are, their lives, and telling it through their own lens, which I think has been a little different in the past that I've seen as women have run. They've tried to run as you know in a more traditional way, and I think they're now running on both sides in, in a little more untraditional way. And as we were talking about before we started, there are a lot of common themes with. With these women candidates, as I see across the board on both sides aisle, there are a lot. I think Julie on our side, as I look at our various women candidates, we've got some incredibly strong candidates this cycle. I uh, I couldn't be more excited about the candidates that we have, and I and you know Martha McSally obviously leading the charge in Arizona there, and but they just have this. Uh, there's just this, like, no-nonsense, I'm going to knock down all the walls, the barriers, whatever it takes, to go get things done. And they all have this. And do you want me it, to say it? Go, you say it, Julie. They're, they're just they're badasses. we <laughs> <laughs>
2: got some badass women running for
3: Congress this we time. We do. Yeah. Yeah, we really and,
2: do. And I'll tell you, we do, too. And we, we've launched, uh, helped launch women in more than 60 house races. The two uh, senate seats, whether we agree on them or not, that are, we think are most likely to flip, uh, have Kirsten Cinema running in Arizona and Jackie Rosen running uh, in in Nevada. Two women who Emily's list supported when they were running for the House, Kirsten Cinema, who we've had a relationship with since she was in the state legislature. Um, this is about women stepping up, and and actually, I think part of it is. They haven't always necessarily seen that the place to use all of these skills was in government. It wasn't always the most productive place to get things done, right? You could get it done in your community. You could get it done in your local school. You could get it done in your local business. But now it's gotten to a crisis point where it's, you know, without more women at the seats of power in Congress, we're headed in a dangerous direction. And we know we will have better policies, and we are seeing record numbers of women, women running against each other in Democratic primaries, which is a great problem to have. Uh, We just saw five women to the next level in Texas. Um, The two who won their primaries outright in the Democratic open seats will be the first two Latinas ever elected in Texas. This is an opportunity to change the face of power in a lot of ways, and whether it's electing Danica Rome, the first transgender woman elected in Virginia this past fall, or Sylvia and Veronica in Texas a few weeks ago, uh, as Latinas, we are seeing change happening
1: of all kinds at all levels. And Emily's just really proud to be helping to lead the way. Well, look at that Arizona Senate race. We're going to have almost certainly a, a woman Republican nominee, Martha McSally, and a woman Democratic nominee, Kirsten Sinema, both of whom are younger women, uh, it's an open seat. They both have served in Congress, but they're not Senate incumbents, and that's going to be a really fascinating race to watch. And you know, gosh, is it one of the first woman versus woman Senate contests out there? I mean, it may be. I'd have to reach I back into the archives. Others, but it's it certainly
2: maybe one of the biggest, most competitive.
1: Yeah, like we're an the open Most seat. competitive. Yeah. An most open competitive. Seat. Yeah. Yeah. yeah,
2: and they're
3: both prolific fundraisers. Yeah, um, they're both exceptionally popular on. For, on their, on their opposite teams. Um, I think it's gonna be a, um, it's, it, if it's not the marquee uh, race of the cycle, I'd be surprised. But right now, that's certainly how it's shaping up. And with the late primary uh, in Arizona, August 28th, it's, there's not gonna be a whole lot of time, but th- th- they'll, they'll, <laughs> I think they'll find a way to, to flood the airwaves, you know, not necessarily against each other, but certainly trying to be louder than the other and, and, and talk about why their brand of uh, politics is the right one to support. Um, you know, I, myself, am a McSally fan, have been from day one, and I, I think she uh, she's a fighter. I mean, that's what she does.
2: I've known Congresswoman Sinema since she was a state senator in Arizona. When I was a state house member in Maine, uh, I met her at a national conference, and I knew the day I met her that she would be a United States senator someday. <laughs> um, and uh, Emily's list is going to work hard to make sure it's this year. <laughs> well, we're going to work very hard against It's going to be great. <laughs> it's going to be great. See, so, but look how friendly we so, can yeah, be, right? Exactly. I mean, we're both in it to win it, and we're going to play hard right. to win that's right. But it's also a matter of, you know, this moment is, is going to be transformative, whether it's in Arizona, to, to my home state of Maine, really to all 50 states. I think we're seeing women step up. And, and I think the ripple effect of this on the next generation and future elections is going to be huge.
1: Emily, we might have a majority female caucus in the Democratic House of Representatives next year, right? Yes, we will.
2: Um, Emily's List has already endorsed enough pro-choice Democratic women to flip the House and then some. Uh, We've endorsed nearly 30, uh, 30 women in races across the country. We need 23 seats to flip the House, um, and we're ready to flip the House with our, with our candidates. And I think we could see a majority of women in the Democratic caucus, and to me that only means good things will come, both in work that will happen in the Congress and the stories that will be told to inform those important policy
1: decisions that need to be made. You're the only one in this room who's actually had the guts to put her name on the ballot? and run for office and get the signatures and ask people for their vote. So tell us a little bit about your experience actually being a candidate. What were some pluses of being a woman as well as some of the additional challenges?
2: I love this work. And when I started, I started just like the story Julie told earlier, as the candidate who responded to the ask. My state senator and her husband asked me to run for office. And my response to her was, I'm sure you're talking to a lot of qualified people, let me know how I can help. If that were today, I would, I would yell at me. I would say, Come on, and say yes. Um, I had no idea about the journey that I would be embarking on. And what I have learned is that the, the things that are the frustrations when people ask you about your clothes that you're wearing, which they do, they comment on your weight, they want to talk to you about whether you have children or when you're going to have them if you don't, are actually coming from a place where, where people just genuinely want to know you, and those are opportunities, I think, to change stereotypes and to open people's eyes to, the, to see that representation and effective representation can look like somebody like me. Um, I, my experience running was one, uh, and I ran in five, no, six general elections Um, and primary election as well. Uh, I won most of those races. (laughs) Didn't win the two congressionals, but all the others I did. And I think that it came down to my ability to connect with people at the doors. That I would show up ready to listen, ask for their support. Um, But I also ran smart campaigns. I took advice from Emily's List. Emily's List was with me from day one when I ran for Congress, helping me put together my campaign, helping me know how to run a campaign that reflected who I am and what I cared about and why I wanted to represent the people of Maine. It's not rocket science, but it is something that requires you to put yourself out there to be willing to be vulnerable, to be willing to have those rocks thrown at you or those negative TV ads come up at you on television, Um, and ultimately. I believe if you wake up in the morning caring about something, you are qualified to run for office. That's how you know the day after the election whether you were in it for the right reasons. Because when you wake up the day after you lose, if you still wake up caring about the future of the state of Maine like I did, then you know you did it right. Um, I think it was my experience as a the oldest of three girls, as someone who grew up with a mom who worked and a grandmother who had 16 grandchildren and seven kids of her own, you know, I grew up with strong women role models that taught me and that you get up every day, you do your best, you move the ball forward, um, and, and that's how you ultimately get ahead. I think that applies I- in this work. Um, and I try to share those experiences when I talk with candidates, particularly the candidates who are facing those often sexist remarks about, are you really gonna wear that when you do your debate? Won't it be distracting? Are you or I remember when I got glasses in the twenty fourteen campaign, I actually had a reporter ask us off the record, did she get glasses to look smarter on TV? And my campaign manager said, No, no, she can't see without that. So she has to wear the glasses. But you know, there's this other layer of expectation that comes with having women run for office. And I think the best way to deal with it is to barrel through call your sisters for a pep talk when you need them because once you get there, once you arrive, once you win, you change what the normal is in congress. You change what the normal is at the state house or in the governor's mansion. And that's what this this is about and that's why I'm so excited to be at Emily's list cuz I can bring those experiences to bear.
3: And just well, just to oh. be fair, I did run for student body president. Oh, hey. okay. 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 And so I just want to put that out See, there. You've done but it. what I would say to Emily is thank you. Thank you for running, and it's something that I say to all the candidates I meet with. It's a great personal sacrifice. You know, I don't know a single uh, woman who has run for office because they needed the job. You know, they, you know these are the, the best and the brightest, and they could be doing just about anything, and they choose to sacrifice, uh, make a lot of personal sacrifices by running for public office. Uh, as all of us know who actually work in this town, it's not that great of a job. Uh, it's a really difficult <laughs> job, and it's a really important job. And uh, one of our members of Congress, who I will, will um, keep anonymous, but for the first year she was here, uh, when somebody would ask her if she liked it, her answer would, would be, well, it's important. And so uh, it is important. And thank goodness we have so many qualified, credible, uh, just really terrific women running for office on both sides of the aisle this cycle.
0: Well, Julie, you're the champion of uh, pep talks to candidates. I know they call you all the time. All the time. You've been a great mentor. I mean, you truly have been. Uh, If you're a woman candidate running for office, your first call is to Julie you want to talk to her because she will give you great advice but also because you know she's going to stick with you from the day you announce until the very end but tell us a little bit about what are some of those calls that you get I mean you field them constantly and I know how much they trust your advice yeah
3: the the good news is I'm getting so many calls which means these women get it they understand that they they know what they don't know And so they call, and they know that, you know, I'm a trusted advisor, and I'm going to give them the best advice possible. And if I think they're doing something wrong, I'm going to tell them. And if I think they don't have the right people around them, I'm going to tell them. And uh, these are conversations that are important to have. And I met with a candidate a couple weeks ago, and she's terrific, except she will not make the fundraising calls like she needs to. And so I'm just just beating it into her that this is, you know, it's, a ter- it's terrible. Nobody likes making fundraisers calls. As a, as a professional fundraiser, <laughs> I can tell you it never gets fun, even if it's what you do for a living. Um, but you have to do it. And for women, raising money is often the biggest challenge. And, you know, it's hard to ask, ask for money, especially for yourself. And so I spend a lot of my time... Uh, explain it to women that they actually do have a lot of friends to call and that they should do it, and start with the softballs call you know call your best friends you know if your best friends are starting to tell you no maybe you should be looking at something else, but it 's going to be really hard for your best friends to tell you no and practice on them and you just have to, you just have to do it and you know one of the other things is go back to the policy you know uh, depending on your background you know let 's say if you 're a doctor running for office for the first time. You know, it's not going to be surprising that you don't know everything you're supposed to know about foreign policy. It's just not where you've spent your life. And so to have a safe place to call and to put these candidates in contact with trusted folks that can actually explain things to them and actually and have conversations you know both political committees you know whether it's the d trip or the nrcc you know provide talking points to candidates but it's just that it's talking points if you don't truly understand something it's really difficult to be confident when you're out there talking about it and so i love matching candidates up with 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 mentors uh, whether it be in in
2: professional policy space or with women that have been elected before them i would just add that in this in this kind of moment where we see so many women stepping up for us at Emily's list with the thousands of women we have trained in the last year with the women who are running the hundreds of women who are running across the country it's it's the women who we are training who will run the ones who run who will win and the ones who win that will make all of the difference and the opportunity to have more of you there is even better um, and and I think the hardest part is putting your name on the ballot, mm-hmm. and, and a lot of women don't realize how hard that part is. That actually, most people in the world do will never put their name on the ballot, right. um, or even on the sc- even for school yeah, board, right? Even for your local right. school right. government, right? Yeah. Most most people will never do that. And so once you've once you're there, it's that it's that ability to ask for help, to have somebody to call, whether it's Julie for the Republicans or the, me for the Democrats, to know who to call because. When we elect more women, when we run more women, they have each other's back. And I think that's going to do us all a lot of good for a long time to come.
3: Yeah, I would just underline that by saying the Republican women and the Democratic women in the House and in the mm-hmm. Senate as well, they're, they're great friends.
2: Yeah, and yeah. I, I had the same experience. I mean, the across the aisle friendships are real friendships yeah. um,
0: at, at, at that point. Well, you guys are both working with a lot of great candidates, so I'd like to put you on the spot to highlight just a couple, no Senate candidates, please, although we do <laughs> like a lot of them, but just House candidates that are on your radar that, that you're watching and uh, like to hear a little bit about them.
3: I'll start with one and it'll go, it'll go back to the race we, race we've already been talking about. That's Arizona. So there's a terrific woman running to uh, replace Martha McSally in Tucson. Uh, her name is Leah Marquez Peterson, and she is president and CEO uh, of the Tucson Hispanic Chamber of Commerce, has held that that um, position for nearly a decade. She's a businesswoman. She's an entrepreneur. She's a great community um, um, advocate. Uh, she, she fits the district like a glove, and we're super excited about her candidacy. And over on the Democratic side, they're they're using a, a, another... Uh, <laughs> A good candidate that's run a few times out there against her, so
2: we'll see what happens. It's going to it be a close one. It is never a dull moment around here. I mean, we have so many women running all across the country. I'm going to stay out in the West, but I'm going to switch over to Texas. It is so hard to pick a favorite. Whether Texas
0: it's... is Allie's favorite state this cycle,
1: so <laughs> oh, Texas is fun. a good place yeah. to go. Really. Well, I'm convinced know, we're going to pick up seats in Texas. It, it's
2: an exciting time to uh, to have women running, whether it's somebody like an anchor Patrick in Arizona or who I want to talk about is Gina Ortiz-Jones, who's running in Texas. Texas 23. Uh, there's a lot of districts in Texas. And, I've got, and also,
1: this cycle, Texas 32 is correct. also competitive. That's where I went. So, that's yeah.
2: so that's 23 32. Go. So it's, Gina Ortiz you know, Jones is a young, veteran, lesbian woman of color who just won her primary by double digits. Now she's in a runoff. We're going to be with her through the runoff. We are confident, as the top vote get her in the primary, she will win the runoff and then she will defeat Congressman Will Hurd in November. And I think she's just one of many of these stories of women who never thought about putting themselves on the ballot. Somebody like Gina, who has served our country, who is now getting ready to serve in a new way. These are stories that will inspire will inspire other women across all sides of the aisle for many years. And the thing that is
1: interesting about Gina is she almost avoided a runoff. And in a multi-candidate field, you have to get over fifty percent of the vote. So that's impressive. She really She really did well in that primary and she defeated, you know, several other Democrats in that primary that really were thought to be the favorite and that were, you know, backed by the party and other prominent politicians in Texas. Um, So her win was very impressive. And I think it's because of the story she has. And, you know, she if you watch her ads, she just has this unique story. And I think it really resonated in that district. I it is
0: interesting to watch women on both sides sort of defy the conventional wisdom of these primaries, of what normally, what it, I mean, in Texas 23, the fact that Jay, Allie Hewlings, thank you, uh, did not win, I think was a big surprise to the Democratic establishment there who are behind them. I'm going to put a plug in for a candidate that I love. In California 49, Kristen Gaspar, she's running... Um, as, once again, someone who a lot of the insiders have said don't run, but she has a record of getting you know things done and getting real results as a county supervisor. And she's sort of the next generation of Republican leadership. So we'll see how that one turns out in the multi-multi-candidate field we have in California 29 with the jungle primary situation there too. But Allie, any that you're watching closely?
1: Um, you know, one of the most impressive candidates I've met this cycle is Chrissy Houlihan. Oh. I who, love Chrissy Hoolihan. <laughs> she's amazing. She was a business leader. She also is a veteran. Um, and she's running in uh, Pennsylvania 6, which is in the Philadelphia suburbs. The district got a little bit more democratic after the court forced the redraw of the maps. Um, and she is fantastic. She is a great candidate. She doesn't have a primary, so she'll be the nominee. Um, but she's really quite impressive. But
2: I will tell you, here's the backstory on Chrissy Hoolihan. Emily's List had this wave of women after the 2016 election reach out to us. Chrissy Houlihan called the general office number and emailed the info at Emily's List account, sent an email, attached her resume, and said, I woke up the day after the election saying that I couldn't sit by and not do something. And so I'd like to consider running for office. And we called her back. Um, and we've been helping her since, I guess that was January of 2017 that we first had our calls with her. I was at home in Maine not thinking I would ever be at Emily's List. And I got a call from Chrissy Houlihan uh, back last spring saying, I'm running for Congress in Pennsylvania. I'm calling to because they said you could give me some advice. I had no idea I'd end up in this job at that time. She's such a go-getter. She's asking all the right questions. And the reason she doesn't have a primary is not because there weren't a lot of people who wanted to also run. It's because she started early, she made those calls, she sat down and had those meetings, and after every one of those meetings, they said, I'd rather support you. And I think that's what a lot of these women are doing by breaking the mold in their political pathways. Um, They're they're really turning it all on,
1: on its head, and that's a good thing. It is. Well, thank you both so much for joining us for this great conversation about women candidates. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. you.